head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, my emotional sous chef, it's Sean Fantasy! What's up, Chris? Let's sous vide this pod. Oh, it's nine in the morning, and Sean and I are here to talk about many things, among them Top Chef. Andy's out today, so Sean was nice enough to join me on The Watch today. But I wanted to hit a couple of other topics before we got there, Fantasy. There are few things that we talk about as much as this next topic. One, you know, we do, what are we going to do with our lives a lot? And then the next <laughs> thing we do after that, I think, is what's the difference between movies and TV? Yeah. So this week in Variety, there was an interesting article that came out. I believe Adam B. Very uh, wrote it. And it was essentially about Marvel's and Marvel's TV divisions uh, challenge to the existing paradigm of making television. Now, I would argue that I think television gets made lots of different ways and it always has been. But I would say that there is a uh, preconceived notion that like the head writer and a creator of a show often becomes that show's showrunner. And then the showrunner becomes uh, judge, jury, and executioner about every single thing you see on the screen. Now, obviously, that's not always true, but I think that the idea of writer-showrunner is still pretty sacred in, in Hollywood. It's obviously sacred in the television business. And this Marvel article kind of goes a long way of saying, well, in Marvel, we do things a little bit differently. Now, they, they obviously like they kind of shoot these shows, apparently, like the way you would shoot a movie. They think of them as movie productions rather than TV productions. And I think they also distribute power, creative influence across the board a little bit more. They have creative executives. When we had Malcolm Spellman on, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier creator Malcolm Spellman, he talked about working with his creative executives at Marvel in the writer's room. And then they have a director. Matt Shackman did uh, WandaVision and Carrie Scoglin did Falcon and Winter Soldier. And it sounds like the director has quite a bit of power as well in terms of making calls. So... In this article, and we'll get to Sean. I'm sorry for for this long buildup, but I'm loving it, Chris. Keep you're the king monologist right now. In in this article, basically, Variety found like two or three people willing to go on anonymous sourced record to be like, this works if you like if you're just like coming up or if you're like kind of you're you're a, a workaday writer. This is great. 
because it's like you get in the door, you get to play in the sandbox, like everybody says. But if you're a top tier talent, and I don't know who this imaginary straw man showrunner that they're referring to is, you're not going to want to be told what to do by essentially a suit at Marvel. Um, I was curious on what you thought of this article just off the top. Well, as a guy who loves to be told what to do by suits, you know, I really empathize. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, I, this feels like a lot of false concern, candidly. I think that the the nature, the way that that, that creative entities are organized is always going to be a little bit mysterious. And the presumption that there's a one size fits all approach to TV making, and that's the approach that works best is a little bit of a fallacy. I mean, you mm-hmm. and I both know people who have worked in TV, who have written TV shows. The co-host of this show created and ran a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, some shows do have that top-down approach that you're talking about, and some are much more collaborative. Some are much more driven by network. Some are much more driven by producer. Some are much more driven by director. The Marvel thing, I do think that Marvel is operating kind of outside of the strictures of all of the various media formats that it is distributing across. I just don't think there's too many potential comparisons. But what I thought about the most was something like the Bond movies when I was Mm -hmm. reading this story, which is to say like the Broccoli family controls the Bond movies and has for decades. And they're the final word in the same way that Kevin Feige is the final word. Now, there are creative people who operate inside of the Bond system and there are creative people who operate inside of the MCU and those stories. And so Malcolm Spellman and Carrie Scoggle, they get to work together to build something that basically the MCU brain trust has already roadmapped. Yes. And so that's very different from Matthew Weiner's life's aspiration being to create and run Mad Men. They're just and not then, the same thing. Yeah, and and maybe the writer of this, the idea that the writer of the script would then be walking around adjusting Don Draper's tie, like right. you know, or saying like, no, say it like this. This is how I wrote it. That's not in a Malcolm Spellman's or Jack Schaefer's hands, probably. I think that they do amazing work. I mean, Malcolm obviously brought a lot to Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but. I think that that kind of I think that when they get there, they have like a very set lane that they're supposed to stay in. Here's the places where you can kind of mess around with who these people are. You can give them like these emotional beats that are different from movie to movie, from show to show. But they have like a roadmap to some extent narratively going on. Do you find this um, at all? I don't know if romantic is the right word, but do you? Do you kind of enjoy the aspect of this that's like a return to golden age studio system? <laughs> I'm serious. Well, like, I, I mean, like, I, because I want, like, in some ways, like, you and I, like, I think we get a charge out of this idea. Uh, for as much as the guys in Mank seem miserable, mm-hmm. it's also kind of cool the idea of like sitting around a room and bullshitting with your friends to make a wrestling picture. Right. Well, and I, I think. I mean, I think some things by committee are great and some things by committee are disastrous. Yeah. I think the Marvel shows thus far have been a real mixed bag. You guys have talked about them. Some things I think have worked wonderfully. Other things feel very much like nine or 12 people were deciding to take something out or put something in at the last minute. And that is, I think, pretty different from the MCU movies, actually. And in part because those are very contained projects. Those are the most streamlined entertainments that we have. But to me, the very best golden age, you know, concepts, films, projects were always things that had 
dynamic creative forces mm-hmm. bucking against the system structure and then those two things working together to create something beautiful you know nicholas ray making movies in the late 40s and the yeah, mid 50s yes yeah. the, these people who took these formats and who took the the expectations of the audiences and kind of redefined them and so i'm like we're looking forward to loki i i I feel terrible making a comparison between Nicholas Ray and the forthcoming series Loki, <laughs> but you know, maybe that, that seems like a show that is um, a bit afield from where we have been thus far, or at least from something like the Falcon and the winter soldier. So hopefully that will bear some exciting fruit. I, I, I don't think I'm like nostalgic for anything though. At this point, like with TV, I, it, it always struck me that the people who were the most successful throughout that kind of golden age of prestige television we're basically which like directors three years, by the way. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. that's a good point. But like those five shows, you know, the yeah. the Breaking Bad, Sopranos, you know, Mad Men, that 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 short list. All of those guys, and they were mostly guys, were auteurs in disguise. They were filmmakers. You know, they they were as much filmmakers as they were writers. And so it seemed like in this piece, there's this phantom tension between the idea of like the writer being in charge versus the filmmaker being in charge versus the producer slash suit being in charge. And so often like that showrunner person is also a filmmaker is still Mm -hmm. a creative person. So pitting Scoglin and Spellman's power against each other felt like a little bit of a false positive to me because Scoglin is also a creative person. You know, certainly a shepherd working on behalf of Feige, but like we're all kind of working on behalf of Kevin Feige these days, you know? <laughs> um, let's talk about something that is decidedly not the work of a like by committee. It is very much the vision of one person, and that's Underground Railroad. Uh, Andy and I have mentioned this before, but haven't gone too in-depth. But it's Barry Jenkins' 10-part, I guess, limited series, I don't really know what to call it, that dropped last night on Amazon in full. I think it's it's got to be over 11 hours in total runtime. I, I haven't calculated it at all. There's one shorter episode in the middle of the season, if you want to call it a season. As you can tell, I'm going around in circles because I don't really know what the terminology should be for um, a really, really important work of art being dropped on uh, the place where I go buy bulk paper towels <laughs> on a Thursday night. And, you know, I watched the first one last night. It is unbelievably overwhelming on a sensory level you know like the sound the music by nicholas Patel, the visuals that uh jenkins conjures the uh obviously the the things it's depicting but uh obviously i don't think you have a, we want to like just sort of give it a cursory review or anything but what i want to talk about is the delivery model and i think that if jenkins had so much clearly has so much control over what he was shooting and what he'd finally delivered, he must have had at least something to say about how he wanted it delivered to people. Mm-hmm. So for you, can you even speculate why he would want something like this to be put out all at once? Well, on the one hand, he's he's comes from a filmmaking background. He's he's directed episodes of TV in the past, but obviously Moonlight, if Beale Street could talk, the, the, these are films. Um, and I think the expectation is that the Underground Railroad should be treated like a 10-hour movie. That's yeah. obviously completely pat as a phrase at this point, but th- in this case, it does seem to be some truth to it. On the other hand, the Underground Railroad is based on a novel by Colson Whitehead. Sure. And I know you are a voracious reader, but not so voracious that you can finish every novel in one sitting. And so it creates this complex anxiety of viewership where um, especially for 
a, a, a series that has such intense subject matter, the what's the best way to consume this is kind of this ongoing question. I mean, you and Andy have been talking about this for years, ever since the kind of bundle drop method started. Um, I find it daunting. I find it daunting not just because of this show and its subject matter, but all shows. I find, you know, bundle drops for virtually any TV show daunting. I have been relieved to get the weekly model on Disney Plus uh, on shows like um, on WandaVision or on Invincible on Amazon Prime. That has been fun. I've looked forward to the new episodes dropping. I've kind of just created like a Thursday night, Friday afternoon experience uh, anticipating them. I, I probably would have done the same for this show. I think there's just a sense of like, well, where do we start? You know, like when do my wife and I sit down to watch the first three episodes of this show? Is it on like, is it a Saturday night? Is it a, is it a movie experience? Mm-hmm. Is it, um, let's carve out an entire day and try to knock out as much of this as we can. Um, I, I think like appreciation and admiration versus the sort of, sort of like soft brain engagement of most TV is something that's like a little bit at conflict here, at least from an expectations perspective. I haven't watched the show yet, so I don't know, but, um, the sense that this is not like turning on the circle on Netflix. You know, this is not something that like you can do the dishes while you kind of half watch or half listen to. You should, you should engage, you know, like yeah. Nick Bertel, James Laxton. These are people like at the absolute top of the food, creative food chain right now. These are people who are like literally in their primes coming off of Oscar winning work yes. and making a show, making a TV show. So like pay attention, pay attention to what they're doing. Look at how they're potentially redefining the parameters of what TV can be. But on the other hand, 10 hours is a lot of TV. It's just a lot. And yeah. it's hard to sort of like manage and mortgage your time. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about it. I assume that Barry wanted to do it and I haven't talked to him about it um, because he wanted people to have the opportunity to watch it in one shot. I would guess that fewer than 10% of people that are engaging with it are going to be able to do it in that way, though. Yeah, I mean, that would be a a real Herculean undertaking. I wonder whether or not there is something to be said for maybe his idea is just like, you know, I want this outside of any kind of like um, slow drip consumption. Like maybe if you want to watch it in two days or if you want to watch it in six weeks or one year, that's your choice. But I'm taking it out of the hands of like, I don't know, like it, it, the, the, distribu- the distribution of it shouldn't be the story. Now it's here just the same way a movie will arrive on a Friday and you can go see it on Friday night or you can go see it in three weeks. Or you can wait for it to come to your computer or do whatever you need to do. But like, yeah, I was watching it last night and, and you know, for, for as much as it's up, you're, you're just witnessing pure trauma. Uh, you also like there is something so deeply moving about the visuals and the the art making essentially that it was like sort of something of a pleasure to watch you know what i mean when you like you're saying when you get to watch these people at the top of their game it's it's always going to be you kind of feel lucky you know what i mean yeah i i think it's an interesting gambit by amazon i mean i I don't really necessarily understand amazon's strategy at all um Mm -hmm. i don't understand like what the their identity is as a streamer in terms of the shows that they green light I don't really understand the way that they organize and execute their streaming service. I, I find it kind of fascinating. I mean, it's obviously incredible that they greenlit a mass budget adaptation of a novel like this, but it is and also it, spent half a billion dollars on Lord of the Rings. You know, like it's <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And also, you know, bought Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. And it was announced yesterday that they bought Kay Cannon's update of Cinderella starring Camilla Cabello and we'll be putting that on their service and it does feel a little bit you know set 
the Barry Jenkins project aside for a second, it does feel like every streamer is in this odd, like agglomeration phase where they're like, I just have to grab this and I have to grab this and I have to grab this. And I just have to try to have as many things as I can to draw in as many people as I can. And, you know, this, the just I was talking about the prestige era of TV and it felt like at that time that, you know, AMC was trying to define in a certain kind of identity with a certain kind of show. HBO was trying to define a certain kind of identity with a certain kind of comedy, for example. Mm-hmm. It, it does not really feel like we have that. There's no definition really around most of the streamers. And that doesn't really matter. These are just delivery systems. Ultimately, it's cool that we got to watch this. We're going to get a chance to watch this show. What I do personally is I use Apple TV and I use the Apple TV app within the the box. And I let that basically like identify to me what are the shows I'm in the middle of. So if I'm watching the Underground Railroad at the top of that service, it'll say like, you're on episode three and you're halfway through the, the underground railroad or, you know, I'll fire it up and see that I need to watch the challenge all stars, which I'm watching on Paramount plus and loving. So all that stuff goes through Apple TV and you can kind of see, like I've watched three episodes of mayor. I've watched two episodes of underground railroad and exactly. Whatever the challenge. And that's like my new DVR queue. And that's how I keep in my mind, the shows that I'm in the middle of experiencing And I find that that's helpful to kind of organize everything, but not every service allows its API to be filtered through Apple TV. So sometimes I have to like, if I want to look at what's in my YouTube TV DVR, I have to open up that app and remember that for Top Chef, for example, does not get filtered through Apple TV. So it's like, we're still not at a place where everything can be cleanly organized for everyone, but it's getting closer. And Mm -hmm. so when you get closer, and and I'm sure that this is true for people who use Roku and other, other services as well, like, it is starting to remove the, any concern that like Amazon even has to have a brand. Like at a certain point, it's just like, what's a good show. I don't think that the people who work there are like when you go to Amazon prime video and it's just like this array of kind of like stuff that's sort of original and then stuff that you can watch if you have a subscription. And then also like stuff you can add if you have a stars subscription, that's not, that's not arbitrary. They've clearly Mm -hmm. decided like this is either a way that people do engage with this content or B, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and it might be that it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, like, I, I think that you and I are in different ways, very organized people. And we're also very curious people about the way. So give me, give me all the criterion curated playlists that are about like Japanese gunmen, you know? And I'm like, Oh, yes. great. I'm glad I have this playlist. It's like, you know, will I ever watch all of these movies? Maybe not. But like, I love the idea of having them organized in that way. Amazon's way more just like here's a Marshalls after everybody's kind of torn through the stacks, yes, you know, for yes. two days, and you might find something you like, and then also trust us, we'll put the most important stuff next to the register. How do you kind of organize what you're going to watch and when? Because you watch so much TV at this point, and there's so much thrown at you, and I feel like you're in this interesting position where people who listen to the show are like, "How dare you not watch For All Mankind season two? <laughs> you you buffoon." You foolish TV critic. So like, what do you do? You know, every once in a while, something like For All Mankind happens where I just like get locked in and I pretty much can do the like, I can burn through this in like three days. Uh, That was actually one of one of those cases. I I still am guided by my obsessions. If if I like something a lot, it just becomes the thing that my wife and I watch uh, at night when we when we start watching TV together. And it, it's it's actually pretty easy for me to just be like, we're watching the Bureau, we're watching Hacks. Hacks is great. People should check it out. We're watching 
you know, call my agent when we get bored. We're watching Girls 5 Eva. We watch, you know, SVUs when we get bored. You know, like we have like four or five things that we're really into at any given moment. So I don't really need the services to organize it for me. I'm also like, because because of like the difference between what your show is, like you wouldn't need to know what that a movie was coming out this weekend. You just know it, right? Like I know people want to know about Mayor on Mondays or whatever, or at least I want to talk about it on Mondays. So it's pretty, it's pretty organized in that way. So, okay. What percentage of shows do you think you complete versus leave midstream? It's really, really rare that I, if if I don't like a show after the first episode, I sometimes give it a second episode. If it's like, especially if it's just like a, a half hour show or it's like a 40 minute show, it's hard for me on like the really like sort of serious dramas. If I don't like the first one to keep going for another hour or two into the second or third episode, even though, I should follow my own advice and say like first episodes are often a little stiff. They usually, sometimes they change writers. Sometimes they figure it out in the third episode. I thought zero 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 was an example of a show that got exponentially better in the third episode. I stuck with that because of the subject matter. And I was curious about it for all mankind is something that I started the first season. Didn't quite vibe with the first couple of episodes abandoned and then got so tired of people telling me that the second season was like among the best seasons of TV they had seen in recent memory that I did this like absolutely lunatic behavior where I watched the second season without finishing the first season, but read about the first season, like Harvilla horror movie style. Rob Harvilla doesn't watch horror movies, but he reads Wikipedias about horror movies. And it actually was like, you can do it. Like there's no right way to do something. Yeah, I just I, there's this encroaching tension on me in my life where if I'm watching something that I know I don't like and I'm doing it for not just professional reasons, but like out of this perverse sense of obligation, all I can think about in the back of my mind is you could be watching one of the great works of cinema right now. Yeah. And instead, you've chosen to be an absolute tool bag watching episode six of WandaVision. And on the other hand, I'm like <laughs> invested to go back to the MCU thing. I'm in I'm. I'm engaged enough in the long-term storytelling of the Marvel stuff that I will finish every series that they make. I will. And, and every there are other shows that are disconnected from a universe that are just, just dramas, hour long dramas Uh that I feel basically the exact same way about. I feel as emotionally connected to as I would something like Falcon and winter soldier. And I'll just drop it like a bad habit. I'll just give me an example of something like that. Hmm. This isn't, um, I watched the first episode of Girls 5 Eva. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't subscribe to Peacock. And uh, I, I I watched it because Sam Esmail was like, it's great. Me yeah. and Emmy knocked it out over a weekend. And I was like, okay, cool. I will check it out. I love Tina Fey and Robert Carlock shows. How's, how's Sam doing, by the way? He's good. Uh, <laughs> he, um, he was very concerned about the jealousy that could be created by his appearance on the big picture. So I'm glad it worked. Um, so anyway, I watched Girls 5 Eva. And I really liked it. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was like brilliantly cast. One of the more brilliantly cast sitcoms I've seen in a while. But I also was like, I get the joke. Yeah, I actually, right. I get the joke and I don't, do I need 10 episodes of this? I would enjoy it. But do I really want to watch this instead of the Japanese gunman movies that you're talking about? Yeah. I kind of don't. Yeah. And I don't want to sign up for Peacock to watch all of them. So um, I don't know if I'll pick that show back up. I'm, it was a show that my wife and I could watch together and could dig together. So that's like a point in its, in its favor, but there's this just kind of constant 
decision making process. Whereas yeah. in the past, it was like it's Thursday, let's watch ER. You know, there was no there was no thinking. Well, there involved. was also back like I think that there was also like I like hospital shows mm-hmm. or I like cop shows, and we have this incredible variety now and an incredible like diversity of choice out there. But I think that there's sometimes like people feel compelled to watch things that they literally do not like. You know, I mean, Mayor of Easttown, despite the way that Andy and I talk about it, I know is not for everyone. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I do see some chatter where it's just like, how would anybody, why would anybody willingly make this what they watch on television? And I do think that the explosion of reality TV over the last like 15 years, but especially like now that you can basically, if you wanted to only watch housewives and house hunters and like a couple of, and below deck and a couple of other shows and those shows while i'm sure they have their merits and i'm really not shit talking because i like a lot of reality tv i think that those shows actually can just be tv if you want and if you're just watching that and then i'm like watch kate winslet grapple with the death of her son for f- an hour you might be like why the fuck would i ever do that why would i ever sign up for that yeah although it's funny that you bring up mayor because that's a show that I'll probably just never miss a show like that. You know, the, the, yeah. like the high end Sunday night HBO show, similarly to underground railroad with people who are really, really just very talented and also operating seemingly inside of a network system that is very controlled and frequently succeeds at this kind of programming. Mm-hmm. Even today, even with all the competition and all the difficulties of all the various streamers, Mary is just like on another level from other shows. You may not like the subject matter. You may not like the tone, but like it is, it is Kate Winslet with really, really a, like a a writer who has a clear sense of place and a filmmaker who understands that place and an incredible surrounding cast of people. And even though it is a, the soft brained like murder mystery thing, it's also that high toned like award worthy kind of programming yeah. that I think I've just been intellectually trained to like respect and almost fear if I'm not keeping up with it. And that's a unique kind of tv show that i feel like is there are a lot of shows that seem important but not a lot of shows that that are important enough for me to watch and for some reason (laughs) mayor still checks the box and and maybe it's the hbo branding i don't know totally what it is but i still feel like i need to keep up for fear of losing out well they they have just become experts at making shows like that obviously i mean even even you know from true detective you know big little lies undoing mayor where they've just realized like if you add X percent of mystery along with X percent of elite acting talent, like everything seems to take care of itself. And I think that they still know how to slow drip that stuff over the course of six to 10 episodes over the course of six to 10 Sundays. And it just, it just works. Yeah. It's not, that's not like a sincere mode of TV criticism for me either. Cause like I did the same thing with the undoing, which I thought was absolutely terrible. Yeah. I mean, I, I like, that was like the worst thing I watched last year. That's right. I remember and that. <laughs> I, I just could not believe how poor that show was. And there were a ton of talented people involved and I was engaged till the end. Right. So, you know, mayor is obviously significantly better in my opinion, but, um, and so, so I don't, I don't want- you would watch something like undoing that you actively dislike, feel mild pressure to be a part of the conversation. But ultimately like, there's like a part of you that's just like this, like, this model of television actually is just even at its worst still okay. But yeah. watching like an okay sitcom is like a waste of time compared to like the films that you have to watch. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and and maybe I'm completely alone in that. And maybe people will listen to this and be like, this narcissistic no, moron. I'll take I'll take chill. some of this. I'll take this on too. That's how I felt 
for most of my life until I started watching Survivor about reality television. Mm. And so until I started watching Survivor, thank you, Sean Fennessy, <laughs> until I started watching Top Chef, I was just like, why would I watch something where, and I, I feel this way about a lot of camp stuff. Like, why would I watch something where like 75% of the draw is how terrible these people are or right. how stupid these people are? You know, I would rather watch a comedy that about stupid people. Like, I'd rather watch Eastbound and Down than watch Housewives. You know what I mean? Yeah, so my version of that, I think, as close as I get to that kind of TV, and Survivor and Top Chef are not that. In fact, they're the opposite of that. They're people pursuing a certain kind of weird excellence in their field. I'm not a real housewives person by any stretch of the imagination, but I do like professional wrestling. And I do feel like professional wrestling kind of scratches that itch for me, where I'm like, there's something kind of performative and clearly um, good versus evil happening here in the storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that is like those binaries are a big part of that, like very dumb kind of let's put five people in a house together and have them scream at each other dynamic because you'll inevitably choose sides. It's been interesting to watch. And I, you know, I don't, this was something I wanted to talk to you about around, around top chef as well, but it's just been interesting to watch the um, typical structure of reality TV programming get filtered out of the high end <laughs> reality yeah. shows like yeah. there are no more villains on these shows for fear that you are mischaracterizing someone the quote-unquote bad edit is the tough edit is like is being sucked out of a lot of those shows it's not being sucked out of real housewives there's still people who go on that show and they're like oh she's the one i'm supposed to hate so i get that but on top chef like i think i'm supposed to like everybody and that's a weird way to watch tv yeah let's take a quick break and we'll get into this week's episode of top chef this episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so to, to go off what you were just saying about watching Top Chef without like an antagonist in, in the show or watching Top Chef and the bad edits are now more like wouldn't it be heartbreaking if this person gets sent home on this particular challenge when they completely have like this emotional connection to the background of the challenge like this week was like this this Maria edit where she is obviously like very emotional about making food for first responders or her wife is a fireman and she's like I I need to show and prove here and like I'm just like the whole time hoping that she sticks in it. You know what I mean? I'm hoping that she's that she's still in the competition. That's way different than being like, I mean, Gabriel got like a villain's edit, but like, and and I thought they almost played it up when he didn't come back from Last Chance Kitchen and they were just like, ah, I see this guy, you know what I mean? Didn't come back. But yeah, like this is a strange thing. You've watched a, a lot, if not all of Top Chef. Like this is a recent phenomenon. Yeah, and there are obviously a lot of reasons why the show is is pivoting in the way that it tells the story. I think particularly given filming during COVID-19 and also I think clearly kind of trying to reckon with the idea of um, identity and who gets to tell the stories in the kitchen has been a huge part of the show's um, reevaluation. Andy has talked about this a lot over the last couple of years and um, is, is right on point. And in in 99% of cases, it's way better that way. It's way better to have different kinds of um, food cultures get a chance to shine on the show, different kinds of people to get a chance to shine on the show than did in the historically white context of Top Chef. But also it creates this sense of like, oh man, we don't want to misstep or we mm-hmm. don't want to like, we don't want to underserve this story that we feel is important to tell. And it's hard, it's hard to make a compelling reality television show in that kind of predicament. It's not impossible. Most of the time they, they succeed. But as I was watching the last couple of episodes, I kept thinking about Marcel from the Los Angeles season of Top Chef. Okay. Um, he was an, he was a, a character. I want to say that season was 2007. And I think it was the second season. And he was seemed like a real bastard. <laughs> and he was immensely gifted. I think he was the runner up that season. But he he kind of relished the the sort of needling high school bully slash like nerd know it all role, and it was a persona that he pursued and that the show exploited. And I just don't think that there's anybody who's like wants to or even can do that anymore on a TV mm-hmm. show. Now M- Marcel was not like Livia Soprano or anything. He wasn't like a brilliant TV creation, but he made the show more fun and. Top Chef is like not that fun right now. It's it's still compelling. Yeah. And it still reveals a lot about what it takes to be a great chef, which is what I ultimately like most about it. But I don't watch it with the sense of like glee that I once did. And I think it's because it's trying to be more careful than it used to. And it's trying to figure out how to do the show now. I think you're right. But I also think it's because they have to be more careful because there's no social aspect of this game. Because right. obviously they've got these people living in a Kimpton or whatever. And there's no one, there's no interaction with the outside world, essentially. You know, even the the theater of the the last episode where like they're making food for frontline responders, they have to put all this PPE on and then people come in and do like a, a deep clean of the kitchen. While I'm sure that happened all the time on this season, was like 
wow, this is just, this is what I'm watching. I'm not watching like, you know, these people go out to a bar after the night. Now, I, Top Chef has never been like a real, I'm not here to make friends or there was like a fight after like the quick fire or something like that. It For the most part, like a lot of the drama happens in the kitchen. But the the absence of a locality feel like of like it, you know, and you and I have spent time in Portland, like the absence of like being out and about in Portland is nobody's fault, but is like noticeable. And then the, as- the, the absence of the social aspect. But to your point, I was noticing, this has like been a couple of episodes this season where someone's meal gets fucked up because straight up they don't get access to like the tool they need. Like the, the fryer is occupied or the grill is occupied. And like the, the chef kind of like suffers in silence. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, I guess I'll just throw this throw my tamales in like a pizza oven because I can't use the grill. And I feel like in seasons past, and honestly, I would imagine in the restaurant business in general, people would be like, I need the fucking grill. Get off. You know, or like would make a huge scene about it. Instead, they're like, okay, well, I guess I'll just burn all the arm hair off my arm in the pizza oven to make (laughs) raw tamales. Yeah, that feels also just like a a reflection of a lot of the reckoning that's happened throughout the restaurant business, right? And the idea of the domineering chef who's screaming at people all the time and that obviously being something that is no longer thought to be acceptable in our society. And so there is this noblesse oblige now in the kitchen on Top Chef that's like, we're all compatriots. You know, we're not competitors. There, There was that moment in the episode this week where Jamie came back from last chance kitchen and everybody applauded. And it was like, that is not the purpose of last chance kitchen. It's not to reunite <laughs> with your old pal yeah, who makes Jamie weird just noises. Got the the Brooke slingshot back into this game. You're yes. going to be like pretty sorry if she winds up running the table on you guys, you should have been like cheering for Roscoe. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure that in some ways that was informed by the fact that they were relieved that Gabriel, who it seemed like people one did not like, and two was very talented, did not come back, but also you got to beat Jamie and, you didn't. She just yeah. won yeah. the, 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 the week she came back. So uh, I think like I don't want it to seem like not a competition. Like I want people to be to have rivalries and to be maybe not shit talking each other at a high volume because that isn't really what Top Chef ever was. But there has to be tension. It can't just be 12 nice people making nice food, not to, not even looking at each other in a house. Top Chef didn't have that like massive social game. But you would see what how they would interact in the house. Yeah, in the you know, past. you live like you could see that these two people were roommates, or that this person like talks to this person about FaceTiming with their kids or whatever. Like there was a little bit more intimacy. I get the feeling like they're shooting a very like antiseptic version of like a group hang after like the cook. And I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through the anxiety of not only being separated from your home and your family or whatever and your business that may be failing at that time. This is shot last fall. But also just like, you you know, you and I were like careful around each other when we would see each other outdoors and we were like the only two people we would see in in month. Like imagine just all of a sudden living with 12 other chefs and a production crew in a different city and being like, don't get COVID. It's it's a really good point. It it must have been bizarre for them to be making the show. I think about that for, I think almost anything that we're going to end up watching over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, you kind of have to have that dispensation in the back of your mind. It's like this was made under extraordinary circumstances. And even just the handful of filmmakers I've talked to on the big picture recently, every one of them is like, but this sucks. Like yeah. production during COVID is horrible. Like it's already really hard to make stuff. It's really hard to do, do this kind of work because it requires such an intense amount of collaboration, but you're right. You're right. A TV show like this where, um, 
you go from being around just your family or maybe even by yourself for months at a time. And then you're sprung into this moment of like 30 people around you at all times. And also you have to compete. Mm-hmm. It must be tough. I, you know, I'm being a little bit tough on the show cause I love the show so much. And it's, it's pro- that and survivor are probably the two shows I've stuck with longer than any other show short of jeopardy. And I think that they have both had fascinating evolutions in a Mm -hmm. way that like something like the bachelor is not able to evolve effectively. Like whatever happened with the bachelor last year was just like a car crash. I mean, like it seemed like it could not have gone worse in public and top chef is obviously done this way more gracefully and way more thoughtfully. And the show has always had a slightly different pursuit and a slightly different audience. But, um, you're right. This must've been a hard season to make. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I honestly can't wait, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if I maybe can't watch Survivor this year just because the entire conceit of Survivor is to betray people and to mm. honestly like betray people in pretty fucked up ways. Like, you know, where you basically like create the illusion of, of something almost beyond friendship because it's like you and I are actually going to compete together and I'm going to like watch your back. Like all they invoke all this like really like kind of like vulnerable stuff in Survivor and then you'll be like I voted you out and you get rewarded for blindsiding people you get rewarded for like using people's weaknesses against them and I don't know how that show is going to grapple with a lot of this stuff because the world has changed so much since the last time Survivor was on yeah that's an interesting point I hadn't thought of that but the very nature of Survivor is like um, Survivor apologizing for what it is is not going to be entertaining television at all I think they should just go the other way. I and think just make they it just like battle royale. Yeah, it should be like actual murder. They should <laughs> just try to kill swords. each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the actual uh, the actual episode. Just you know, you're you're not. I the little little fact about Sean. He is not a leftovers guy. So I can't imagine that um, overlooked foods was your favorite quick fire. Uh, I, I'm not a leftovers guy in, in two ways. I'm not a fan of the Damon Lindelof series, nor am I a fan of old food. I don't like old food. I'm a huge fan of new food, freshly you love, made You love food. like a hard cucumber, not a soft cucumber. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, I uh, I did not find that to be a very appetizing thing to look at, especially at the beginning of the show. That was kind of a, it was like a, a sensible conceit that I don't, I didn't want to eat any of the things that they made. They've That's had some daffy quick fires this year. There's been a lot of spawn where it's just like, let, let's make Campbell's soup stuff or Talenti. And then there's been like, this was about as close to uh, like reach into this blo- box without being able to see and like pull out at like some weird animal parts and eat them on Survivor. Yeah, mutton carpaccio is really not where my heart is. That's <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm straight up not into it. Um, but, you know, I, I thought it was Again, it's one of those things where there are all of these Jerry Rig challenges throughout the season where it demands that people find ways to be inventive in difficult circumstances. And as usual, the people who are most creative, I think, on the show are the people who were most successful. I mean, Shoda is getting like the insane winners at it right now, where right. it's like he is he's had a, he's faltered a couple of times and did ultimately falter in this episode. But he, for the most part, he and Sarah seem to be operating in a class kind of outside of everybody else. Maybe Dawn is kind of the third in there, but yeah. the three of them are seem to be kind of bulletproof right now. It's like, the I think Sarah and Shoda are a class of... I, I, I think Sarah and Shoda are in a, a tier. I think Shoda's above Sarah, to me at least, because Sarah, I think, has cooked 
if not similar food, similar like preparations. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I feel like she she goes back to a couple of different things. I know the yogurt thing has become kind of a joke now, but like I do think that she, her head is in one place. And then Dawn is right there. Uh, I think Dawn is only not considered as good as Shota because she doesn't won as many times. And also because she had a, an opening episode or two where you were like, I don't know if this person is going to be able to like keep it together while they're on yep. the show. Yep. Um, she she has corrected that pretty significantly, though. I mean, I feel like this episode specifically, the quick fire was designed for her to kind of fix the, the original failure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. I wanted to ask you a, a point of order question. So okay. Shoda wins the quick fire, wins immunity. And, you know, good for him. And then when it's they go through the elimination challenge, and we'll talk more in depth about that, Shoda has made something that I think they say... You're lucky you have immunity because otherwise you would be right here. They've been doing top three, bottom three. So let me ask you this. Do you think it's unfair if Shota made one of the bottom three dishes for him not to be in the bottom three, even if that would change the odds about who is going home? Okay, so he, I, I, I noticed this as well. Based on the, the edit that he got, the reaction to his meal, it seemed like he made one of the worst. And it, historically, I, I believe... Even if you have immunity, you could be in the bottom three. There's been times where people have been like, I feel like I should give my immunity to somebody if I remember correctly, right? Like, I, yes. Like, hasn't there been times where it's like, well, you would have lost. Yes. But you have immunity. And that person has been like, I have to give it up then, you know, or something. Wasn't there somebody who did that? I think that there was. I can't remember who it was. But nevertheless, like, based on the edit, it seemed like Shoda should have been in the bottom three. I agree with you. What I really think is happening is there is some complexity in terms of like what kind of stories they're telling. And I, I think that the people who were in the bottom three actually were in the bottom three. Mm-hmm. I think that they actually did make the three meals that were um, least appetizing or had the most flaws. And so there's this difficult thing where and, it, you know, another factor of this, I think, is there are so many people who are responsible for clarifying whether something is good or not on the show now because they have brought back this kind so of cast many, of yeah. former contestants. So every episode you know, it's not just Tom and, and Gail and Padma and a fourth. It's, you know, Richard and Gregory are and eating Carrie's outside of a car there. and Kwame Dale is and you know, being yeah. merciless about people. And so because you have all of these different people weighing in, it's a little bit confusing kind of who nailed it and who didn't. There's there's some unanimity on who's great, but very rarely on That's who's a at really the bottom. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Like, I really enjoy seeing everybody. And clearly that was like a choice where they were like, we can only bring these people in once. So we have to like bring everybody together, have them quarantine, and then we'll go through this process together in this bubble. But I do think that for the dispersing the opinion across 10 people over the course of the season is making it a little bit... I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like you're seeing it through Tom's eyes, I guess, which is a lot of the times the way Top Chef kind of works is Tom gets annoyed at certain people for screwing certain things up or you get really into somebody's cooking. He's still on the show. And I do think Melissa and, and Kwame and, and Dale and all these people have obviously takes on stuff. But yeah, you can tell there's a real variance in how like cutting people are being versus how like you know gentle people are being. Yeah. I, and so it does create some confusion, I think, in every episode where you're like, wait, why is why is Maria in the bottom three when I, it seems like maybe it should be Shoda, Avishar and Chris? Like, I, yeah, I, but on the other hand, it's like I, Maria made like a pretty significant error and right. they, they identified it in the show, but 
because she got, you know, you mentioned this earlier because she got the edit that indicated that she, her, her partner is a first responder. And they made that point three times in the episode. Mm -hmm. So it was like, there's a, there was this sense that it was like, so she made a huge mistake in her execution and owned up to it, obviously. And she owned up to something else. She didn't know the tamale was raw. She thought she had screwed up something else. And they were like, no, the tamale was raw. So and, she was like, that was that could have been like a disaster for her. Yeah. And like, honestly, it seemed like she should have gone home. And Abishar obviously has struggled throughout this whole season. And it was not necessarily shocking to see him go home. And I'm, it sounds like he just made food that didn't taste good. But I, I don't know if he like had it made, an, made a mistake. People making a, like a cooking mistake like that, like not cooking a tortilla all the way through historically, they go home on the show. Yeah. Like the, the undercooked chicken. Yeah. That's, right, exactly. Yeah. So it, I, it does kind of like... I don't want to say it makes me question the integrity of the show because who cares? It's just a TV show. Yeah. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, Avishar made a mediocre plate of food. There's a lot of mediocre plates of food on the show throughout the season. People don't always go home for that. In fact, most of the time when they do that, they go into like the middle of the pack. Maria made a big mistake yeah. and didn't go home. But why? Like, I, so obviously there's something kind of vague and, and illusory about who, who should go home. There's no metric system for deciding these sorts of things. But I do, because of the way that people are, are positioned in every episode, I'm kind of like trying to identify where they're going to take things. For example, in this episode, we saw this conversation between Dawn and her mom that was like honestly very touching to me. I, I was uh, tearing up hearing them talk to each other over the phone, reminded me of talking to my family during yeah. COVID and just how challenging this is. But um, then I, as soon as that scene was over, I was like, okay, so what does this mean for the episode? Is like, is exactly. Dawn in trouble? Yeah. And that's a weird way to watch TV. It's like th- there's also like a tension between I think the the sweetness of the people and the sweetness of of like the effort being made with the the competition element. Like so I I feel like they've done a couple of of challenges of especially elimination challenges that are actually quite lovely in conception and then it's actually like fucked up that someone has to go home over it like yeah. it's fucked up to send somebody home in a first responders feeding challenge you I know agree. what I mean <laughs> especially when all the first like first responders were like this food's amazing I'm crying <laughs> and then they have to be like you didn't season your beef right get out you know like and that was I, I felt similarly about the first foods that they did in the in, for the Native American tribe like they, that was like this is an incredible challenge and then like someone is going to go home on it it's 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 sort of wild yeah i i think i would prefer um if they were able to tell the stories or go to the restaurants like they went to the restaurants earlier this season of like um yeah. you know various foods there was like an african cuisine restaurant there was a number of different restaurants that they identified like in Haiti and Jamaica yeah that's right and that obviously had a major impact on not just the contestants, but the hosts of the show, the judges. I just don't want that stuff to necessarily be wended specifically into the final challenge. And that's something that they're kind of insisting upon throughout the season. I'm much more interested in like, let's go to an orchard and you have to use food in the orchard to figure out how to win the challenge. Cause there's no, um, emotional or cultural purpose to that other than we're in Portland. Mm -hmm. This is what's in Portland. Let's use the landscape to identify it. Now, I'm sure COVID is affecting their decision-making there, but you're right. There is this dissonance between getting like getting kicked off of a TV show at a hospital where lives are being saved. It just doesn't mean it feels very (laughs) strange to watch that. Um, This Shota elimination challenge felt very much like the uh, Top Chef All-Stars in 
LA when Melissa made a bad salad at the, like the day camp challenge right. and Shota had, a, I think Melissa also had immunity during that challenge and was like, it was one of those things that was a little bit more pure competition where they were like, you guys have to all make food for a day camp, choose what you're going to do at your station. And Melissa kind of was like, I'm like a Caesar, you know? Yes. Shoda kind of just being like, I don't know what to do. This pantry doesn't have like a very specific thing I want. So I'm just going to make bad drumsticks or whatever. And that being said, I don't really, I, I was not shaken in my confidence that he is going to win. I, I, I think he just took a playoff. You know, I think he was kind of like, I didn't get back on defense on this one and it's okay. You know, like yeah. sometimes you got to give up a bucket to get a bucket. Um, I think it, the thing that's interesting about the show is the, the, the pure challenge of Top Chef is in a very short period of time, you have to come up with a great idea. You have to literally invent something or reach back into your, your Rolodex of recipes and invent something relative to the challenge. And what makes it the show interesting is the unpredictable nature because sometimes the very best competitors can fail mm-hmm. to find something and get yeah. kicked off. That's Historically, Top Chef has been one of the, the most merciless shows in that respect. It has it is eliminated frontrunners from the show for making mistakes or failing to come up with something interesting in the competition. Showed obviously was protected from that this week because of immunity, but it just seemed like this was a case where he just kind of couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. And at the last minute made a decision. And then I think it was maybe Gail who identified that, that like there's nothing less appetizing than that. Like, um, boiled kind of chicken, bro- kind boiled of. chicken skin. That yeah. is, that is maybe the grossest food <laughs> in the world. Like I, <laughs> I it, 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 I feel like it's like food that they make in orphanage or orphanages yeah, in like Dickensian. 1800s yeah. London. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, I, I, I got the sense that he really screwed up, but also you can also pick your spots in terms of when to screw up. You know, do you ever feel like you're taking a playoff on the watch? Like, are there any episodes you'd be like, well, you know, I just didn't have it that day. Yeah, but actually, i be completely honest. Yes. Yeah, there are definitely like pods where I'm like, didn't have it today. Just like, <laughs> I just I just had to stitch it together. You know what I mean? Is this one of those pods? Or are you no, feeling you, good about you're this You're really one? stimulating me. Um, <laughs> is any other, any, not necessarily predictions. I think what we'll, we'll probably get now is now that we're down to seven, I imagine Restaurant Wars is next. Uh, yes, on the preview, it did say Restaurant okay. Wars is next. And, and they're I, doing it chef's table style. Okay. okay so you, cool. you'll be able to see into the restaurant because everything needs to be kind of open and visible. So that's the first time they've ever done that before. That's cool. I was wondering how they were going to manage to do that because that of the the lack of restaurants at this time in American history when they were shooting this especially. So it'll be curious to see how they, they execute that. But this will probably signal like a slight like winnowing of the field where I don't think they'll do as many sort of like emotionally charged challenges. I think it'll be more like restaurant wars and then it'll be like two more and then it'll start to get into the finale. Yeah, I think you're right. And I was surprised last night when, when they, um, in the introduction, they identified that there are eight chefs left. And I was mm-hmm. like, eight already. I know. I know. We're you wake up eight. and then we're just like, Oh yeah, this is it. Yeah. I feel like, and I feel like I watched um the most recent season of the challenge and I, I felt like there were legitimately 57 episodes of that series. You know, I was like, when are we getting to the finale? Like, when is the final challenge going to happen? And now on Top Chef, I'm like, oh my gosh, we're all, we, what do we have? Four or five episodes left? There's it's always that wild. feeling at like the beginning of a season of Survivor where it's like the third episode, you still don't know anybody's names. And like right. the way people are getting eliminated is for the dumbest possible mistakes. Like <laughs> the guy who walks up to like a group of people and is like, let's fucking get this guy behind me, right? <laughs> and they're like, well, this dude needs to go. Or the woman who pours like rice on the fire. Right, <laughs> you know, right, right. Like, and you're like, yeah, this person's gone. 
this is yeah we have now hit the point where i know everybody's sort of tendencies i kind of get a sense of what they're gonna cook i think a couple of people it's funny with gabe dawn i think actually in some ways has become a little bit of like uh, a favorite of mine because i think dawn is so versatile whereas i think yes. gabe sarah and shoda are high level at doing the same thing over and over again that but that person historically has one you know, okay. the person who is like, I am a master of a style. Mm-hmm. And be, I think one of the reasons why that person wins oftentimes is because that clearly ports over to like restaurant theme, restaurant identity. It's like you could see what Sarah's restaurant would be in For her sure. food. You For can sure. see her menu. You can see Shoda's menu in his restaurant. And you look at someone like Don, who kind of can make anything like in on the American roadmap. And what kind of restaurant is that? You know, and I, I it feels like you know, especially with someone like Tom, who's was kind of a master at creating, a, you know, restaurant identity and point of view with very simple food. If it has always felt to me like they look for someone. I mean, look at Melissa, look at Gregory. These are people who had such strong points of view as as chefs and who made food that was sort of culturally or emotionally connected to each other throughout yeah. seasons. And those people tend to dominate. Sarah and Shoda in particular, I guess. I guess Gabe too, because he just is, there's just mole on the plate like every time. Right. But he's like, I made plum mole. I made carrot mole. Yeah. All of which looks good, honestly. Um, But I, I think it's reasonable to assume that those two are, are headed towards the final now because of that. And because of that's the edit that we're getting, maybe that won't be the case. Maybe that actually won't be what we're going to get. Yeah. You know, and we'll probably find out during restaurant wars, if those two people emerge out of it, it will be hard to imagine them getting, clipped off of it in between now and the finale sean thank you so much for joining me today man cr my favorite pod the watch thanks for having me on talk to you soon